2 Kings 14. We have a, a lesson from the lukewarm tonight. One of the worst movies I've ever seen is A Journey to the Center of the Earth. I can explain. Uh, it was the night before uh, Deidre and I had Madison. Um, we were scheduled to go into the hospital the next day, so we knew this was our last night of, of freedom. Um, and by freedom, of course, what I mean is, you know, we can still go on date nights, but we have to conscript one of you to come, come babysit. So this is what I meant by, by freedom. And so we went to go see a movie. We didn't know what movie we were going to go see. We just went to the, the theater, and they had one movie that was showing on three different screens, so it must be good. Um, and it was a journey to the center of the earth, which was as, as, as dumb as it, the title makes it sound. It, I guess in that sense, it didn't disappoint. And if you remember the story, they, they walk into a hole of some kind. I forget how even they get there, and they fall through a hole that leads them to the center of the earth. So I guess it's an accurate title. Uh, and as they're falling, they yell at the top of their lungs, ah, and they run out of breath, and they look at each other in one of the corniest scenes in movie history, and they start yelling again. And then they run out of breath and they look at each other and they say, we're still falling. That's what's happening in 2 Kings 14 tonight. <laughs> this is a free fall to the low point of Israel's history. And by this point you think, can it get any worse? I mean, Elisha is dead. The kings are one worse than the other, and it's just, it's just this tidal wave of wickedness from the kings that really started back in 1 Kings with, with Solomon's polygamy, and then after his death with Jeroboam's cow worship, and then after his death with all the subsequent kings, just, you know, if you remember back in 1 Kings chapter 16, we called it a clown car of kings. It was just one awful king after another, but the, it, the pace hasn't slowed down since then. It's just awfulness and a, and a royal level, and that's what we find tonight. We're still falling lower and lower, lower and lower in God's sight in the way the Israelites live and work. This is really a chapter about two different kings. Neither king, there's two kings in this chapter, one of Israel, one of Judah. Neither kings are godly men. Neither kings are examples neither, to follow. Neither kings are those who uh, seek to do the will of the Lord. They're both evil people, but they're evil differently. And that's kind of the, the key point to understand this chapter. You're going to see one of them that receives victory from the Lord and one of them that sees, receives uh, judgment and defeat from the Lord's hands. And it's not how you would expect it to be. First of all, to understand this chapter, you have to remember the difference between Israel and Judah. They're two different nations. Under David and Solomon, they were united. But after Solomon's death, they divided most of the nation went with the name Israel, and they're the ten tribes. The southern part of the nation, the tribe of Judah, they're a different nation. They're named after their own, their own tribe. And there's a second tribe, the Benjamites, but the Benjamites are, are few in number, and they're, they're small and, and fickle. If you remember, at the end of the book of Judges, the Benjamites were almost eliminated. The Israelites tried to eliminate them, actually, and they whittled them down to just a couple hundred men, and then married them off to their their own daughters, whom they kidnapped to be married off to the few remaining Benjamite men. That's the story of Benjamin. Now they've sought protection and refuge in Judah. So you have Judah, which is two tribes, really one and a quarter, and then Israel, the other ten. Israel has the covenant God made with Abraham. We read about that this morning. 
that God is going to keep them in the land and produce his people. But Israel also has the promise from God that he's going to throw them out of their land because of their wickedness. And the book of 2 Kings is going to end with them eventually being evicted. And we'll see how those promises uh, don't contradict each other uh, in the New Testament, really, is where that comes together. Judah, on the other hand, they have the line of David. And despite their best attempts to eliminate it, the line of David is still there. Remember, wicked Queen Athalia tried to literally do just that, to kill every single descendant of, of David, and she almost achieved her uh, success in her mission. She left overlooked one child, and that child, we're going to hear about his legacy a little bit more tonight. And so you have the line of David versus Israel. Israel is, is cow worshippers for the most part. The line of David is more or less apostate as well. And so this is a story between someone who claims to be a follower of Yahweh and someone who's an out-and-out cow worshipper named for his cow worship. And so you would think if God is going to give victory to one and defeat to the other, would he not give victory to the one who at least claims the name of God? And the answer is no, because as you go through this chapter, you're going to see a contrast here between a lukewarm person and his relationship with the Lord and an out-and-out pagan. And a basic takeaway lesson, let me give you to the front of this here tonight. The basic takeaway here is that it's better to be an out-and-out pagan than it is to be lukewarm. It's better to be out-and-out opposed to God than it is to take the name of God, to have the cross around your neck, so to speak, but not have affection for the Lord in your heart. That's the main lesson from 2 Kings 14. These two nations, Judah and Israel, they're in the middle of their own civil war. They're going to fight tonight. We'll see some of their battles tonight. We're going to see the, the king of Judah take on the king of Israel. The king of Judah, as I mentioned, is lukewarm. He's a compromiser. He claims to love God, and yet that love for God never manifests itself in his life to cause him to actually turn from sin or actually seek the face of the Lord. In the contrast with Israel, you have Jeroboam, named for the cow-worshipping king, Israel's first king after their, their civil war, their divide who built the cows. But this king, Jeroboam, he, although he's descended from Jehu, he's never done anything to make you think that he would claim the name of Yahweh. He's your standard garden variety non-believer in that sense. So you have Amaziah of Judah and Jeroboam II of Israel. And you've just got to marvel at the fact that Jeroboam, again, that was the most wicked king in Israel's history, and he's named for him because of his idol-worshipping ways. Be like naming someone Ahab the second, really, or in our own context, I guess, I don't know, Benedict Arnold the second, or something like that. That's who we encounter tonight. The question this chapter raises is which one of these is the Lord going to bless? The one who claims his name but doesn't have any heartfelt devotion, or the one who makes no claim to know the true and living God? Along the ways, we'll learn some lessons about pride, compromise, all from the lukewarm. That's going to be our lesson tonight. Lessons from the lukewarm. The first lesson, God demands wholehearted devotion. God demands wholehearted devotion. You see this beginning in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 1, in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. And it's confusing when you go back and forth and you read through 2 Kings because it's bouncing kingdom to kingdom. So it introduces each king with the name of the one in the other kingdom who was reigning when he came to power. It would be so much effective, more effective if they had dates. You know, if you could just see this was 515 B.C. That would be so helpful. But they didn't have those dates because it's B.C., right? 
You guys are a smart crowd, the Sunday night crowd. You're, you're on it on that. And so they just bounce back and forth between the names of the two. Well, this king that we're going to focus on here is uh, Amaziah, the son of Joash. He's the, Isra- he's the Judah king. He's the king. He's the Judean, Judahite, however you would say it. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, yet not like David his father. He did all the things as Joash, his father, had done. Now, it's very easy to see that phrase, he did right in the eyes of Yahweh, and think if you just put a period there, ha, good news, he's a good king. No, you need the whole sentence. The sentence is written in its entirety. Not like David, but like his father. Now, what was his father like? Now that you bring up his father, his father was the one who was rescued as an infant in the, the temple, who was raised in the temple. His father seemed to be a godly king. Remember, he started out so well. As long as the high priest was alive, the father did a good job following the Lord. When the high priest told him what to do, the father did it. He renovated the temple. He uh, rebuilt the temple. He brought reform to the Israelite religion. He brought oversight to to their money. He streamlined their process. He made it more effective in the temple for them to worship God. It seems like it's all good, but then the high priest died. And then the princes came to him and convinced him to go back to worshiping Baal, which he did. And then the prophet came and confronted him. The prophet was the the high priest's own son. So in a sense, it was his own uncle, the the one who who helped raise him, that confronted him. And he had that prophet put to death, Zerubbabel. He had him put to death, or Zechariah, had him put to death in the temple. As he clung to the horns for refuge, he had him killed. That's his father. So when it says he did right in the eyes of the Lord, more like his father than like David, that's what we're talking about here. It's a very low bar to reach. To Americanize it a little bit, it'd be like saying, yeah, that person's a good person. You know, do you like your neighbors? Oh yeah, they're good people. You know, not Christians, mind you, but they're good people. They don't steal stuff from my garage. And that's what you mean by that. They're good people. When we invite them over for dinner, they, they, they make a tasty casserole. That's what I mean by that. They're good people, those, those neighbors. Well, that's true, but it's not really a statement about religious affections. That's what you're meeting when you meet this king right here. He did right in the eyes of the Lord, meaning that he, you know, he tried to protect God's people and care for God's people, but not like David. There was no religious devotion to this, more like his father who, remember, murdered the, the prophet that confronted him. That's who we're talking about here. Remember in this, God demands wholehearted devotion, which is not the same thing as perfection. We sometimes stumble over this. We say, hey, how can I do right like David? I mean, he was a man after God's own heart, and you're quick to point out, but David also had sin, and that's exactly the point. When the Bible commands you to be wholeheartedly in your devotion to the Lord, it's not a command for perfection. What it's a command for is that every room of your heart, so to speak, would be devoted to the Lord. There's no closets in your life that are off limits to the Lord, which is very different than perfection. And I hope you understand the difference between that. A person who is wholehearted in their love for the Lord has the Lord involved in every aspect of their life. They're fighting sin in every area of their life. It doesn't mean that they have achieved perfection in any areas of their life, praise the Lord. But that they're going to battle against sin in every area of their life. That's what it means to be wholehearted. The half-hearted, lukewarm person is not like that. The half-hearted, lukewarm person has some areas of their life where they allow the Lord in, 
some areas of their life that they yield to the Lord, and other areas of life that are frankly off limits. And God has nothing to do with them. They're just him. Maybe at his work. Maybe the person doesn't bring the Lord to bear on how he works or how he parents, or how he manages his money, or his hobbies in life, or whatever. The point is that there's areas of life that he just doesn't want to give over to the Lord. That's the half-hearted person. And half in that, in that number right there, it's not an exact mathematical formula. Like half of his life is off limits to the Lord. It's just an expression to mean that there are areas in his heart, his affections, the things he loves in life, that the Lord is not allowed into. That's the way that this king leads. It's a half-hearted form of leadership. Very different than the person who says, I love God with all my heart, and so I want to fight sin in area, every area of my life. So saying he's like Joash, that's a very low bar to ascend to. Yeah, my boyfriend is a, is a good guy. He dates other guys too, but he's a good guy. <laughs> that's that kind of statement right there. Yeah, he treats me nice, but come on. If you were to ask Joash, are you a good king? He would say Yes. If you would ask the Israelites, hey, is Joash a good king? They would say, sure. But if you were to ask him, do you love Yahweh with your whole heart? He would likely say, who? Or whole heart? What do you mean? Let's not get crazy here. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good king like my dad, but not one of those not-so-evangelical religious fanatics like David. I mean, come on. <laughs> Here's another way of saying it. Mediocre orthodoxy is not covenantal obedience. Mediocre orthodoxy is not the same thing as covenantal obedience. Half-hearted obedience is no obedience at all. Half-hearted obedience is no obedience at all. And so this king cleans house in verse 5 after he, he, well, he comes to the throne in verse 3. In verse 4, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed. They still made offerings in the high places. Verse 5, as soon as royal power was firmly in his hands, he struck down his servants who struck down the king, his father. Remember, his father was murdered. After his father killed the, high, the prophet who confronted him, his father's servants murdered him. So now his father's son is on the throne, the new king's on the throne, and he kills those servants who murdered his dad. Everybody's killing everybody. It's a short version of this. This is the Wild West out here. But, eh, you could say it this way, even though his dad was a, a wicked king in that sense, I guess if you murder a wicked king, you shouldn't be surprised when his son puts you to death. <laughs> Verse 6, But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where Yahweh commanded, put to, Father shall not be put to death because they are children, nor shall the children be put to death because they are fathers. But each one shall die for his own sin. So that's what we're talking about. When, he, when I say that he's half-hearted, when I say he demonstrates mediocre orthodoxy, that's exactly what I mean by that. That, yeah, he's godly enough to not put to death kids for their parents' sin. So give him props or props are due, so to speak. But he's not godly enough to actually direct people to worship the true Lord. That's lukewarm compromise. Lukewarm compromise. Like the person who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't think I should be one of those crazy Christians always evangelizing and, you know, always trying to grow in godliness, always talking about the Bible or whatever. I think it's enough to be like Joash. Let me come to church occasionally, sing songs occasionally. Or like this. I want to be like Joash, not like Jesus. <laughs> that would be the, the model here, the half-hearted model. Well, he struck down, verse 7, 10,000 Edomites. 
in the Valley of Salt and took Sela by storm and called it Jothiel, which is its name today, which leads to our second point. The first point, mediocre orthodox, or the first point is that God demands wholehearted devotion. The second point is that pride blinds us from God's blessing. Pride blinds you from God's blessing. Even despite his lukewarm, mediocre ways, God still gives him a victory here. He's still able to defeat the Edomites. Now, this is the people that they have been fighting, it seems like, all book of 2 Kings. If you remember early in 2 Kings, they'd gone to battle. This is the, pro- the battle where Elisha caused the enemies to see the field filled with blood. This is against the Edomites. And so the Israelites pounced on them and were winning. Remember, remember the Edomite king sacrificed his son on the wall, and the Israelites were revolted by that, and so they withdrew, and Edom had the victory. They have been fighting them forever. But now the tribe of Judah breaks through. The nation of Judah breaks through and has victory in the battle. In fact, not only did they win it, but they renamed it. They put their name on it. They stripped down all the old signs. They renamed the city. That's how well they they won the war right there. It's one thing to conquer a, a perpetually rebellious people. It's another thing to rename them, to relabel them. And that's what happened. God gave him victory. But because of his pride... Because of his half-hearted, lukewarm nature, he doesn't recognize that it's the Lord who gives him the victory. He thinks it's his own military powers, his own genius that leads to the victory. In fact, the book of 2 Chronicles fills in more of the details. You don't need to flip there, just, just trust me as I summarize this here. When he goes off to fight the Edomites, he thinks he won't pray. That's what he won't do. He won't pray for God's help. So what he does is he hires mercenaries to fight with him. And he hires mercenaries from Israel. It's the tribe of Judah fighting against the Edomites. He hires 3,000 mercenaries from Israel. A prophet comes, Jonah comes, and confronts him. He says, why are you hiring out mercenaries from Baal-worshipping Israel? Why don't you trust the Lord to give you the victory? And so he sends the mercenaries home. I mean, that in itself is a, in a nutshell, that's the picture of the half-hearted person right there. He's not even, he doesn't even have convictions about his compromise. <laughs> oh, I'm going to compromise here. Oh, you don't think it's a good idea? Okay, I won't do that then. And he sends the mercenaries home. The problem is that the mercenaries go home upset. It's not like they particularly care who wins between Judah and the Edomites, but they were rousted out of bed. They put on their armor, so to speak. They went to battle, to travel all the way to Judah to fight, and now they get sent home when they get there. So they make their way back to Israel, killing Judeans on their way. In fact, they kill, I think, 3,000 people, Second Chronicles says, on their way back up to Israel. So that's the background here. Regardless, because he sent the mercenaries home, God gives them the victory. He takes his own, the king takes his own credit for it. And so now he turns his attention to fight Israel. Verse 8, Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu. So this is the king that we looked at this morning who was at Elisha's deathbed. That's who he sends messengers to. And he summons him. And he says, hey, come on, let's look one another in the face. And that, that translation, eh, with that translation, because in English that could sound, almost, it could sound almost romantic. It depends on how you put the, you know, let's look one another in the eyes. But it, that's not how it's meant. It's meant here as confrontationally. It's meant here in the vein of like, hey, say that to my face kind of language. Brooklyn style. <laughs> Got something to say? Look me in the face to it. Come to my face and say that. That's what he's telling the king of Israel. He's trying to pick a fight with the king of Israel, which is not a good idea. Remember the whole thing about the numbers earlier? Judah small, Israel big. Judah, two tribes, really one and a quarter tribe. Israel, 
10 tribes. Plus, they hire out for help all the time. So it's not going to go well for, for them. Um, but he doesn't see this. He's taking credit for his own. He's taking credit for the victory that God gave him. And this is what pride does. Pride lets you see God's blessing in your life, but thinks that it's from your own work and effort. The person who is proud doesn't see God's hand on his life, even though God's hand is on his life. Because he thinks that he gets it himself. You know, it's the, the old joke about the person whose lungs are filled with, with air and his belly is filled with food and who lives in a you know, a school paid for by his parents and whatnot, who says, what has the Lord ever done for me? <laughs> Show me proof of God's existence, they say, as they breathe the air that God made. This is how people are. You know, they work hard and they have a good job and they, they have kids and a, and a family and a savings account and all that, and they say, what has the Lord ever done for me? This is all because of my work. I've never seen any sign of God's blessing as they're sitting in their nice house driving their nice car. It's absurd. That's where this king is. He looks at the victory he has and his pride has blinded him. He thinks it's from himself as if what has Yahweh ever done for me? Which leads to our third point. Pride plus compromise equals disaster. So a mathematical formula here. Pride plus compromise will equal disaster. And so he picks a fight with the Israelite king. The Israelite king writes back. Verse 9, this is a classic letter. The classic negotiation right here. Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah. A thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife. Following the story, a thistle is like a little briar, a little thorn. I think NAS says briar there, a little thorn bush. Writes a letter to a cedar. Cedars, the massive trees in Lebanon, those, those ancient trees, they're, they're majestic trees. You know, we're talking about a tumbleweed propose, proposing to a sequoia red oak here. That's what we're talking about. The tumbleweed is writing a letter. You guys have tumbleweeds out here in Virginia? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. It's like those creepy ivy vines, whatever you call them, proposing to the massive red oak. It says, hey, the ivy says, I have a daughter. Perhaps she can marry well, your daughter or your son. Let's, let's, let's do an arranged marriage here. Let's arrange this thing. That's what the ivy is promoting, proposing to the, the massive tree. So, how is the massive tree going to respond? Well, we don't find out. Because a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. So, he, Jehoash went to war college, not to literature school. That's how the story ends. <laughs> Violating every basic rule of good short stories here. <laughs> the thistle proposes to the, the tree. How does the tree respond? I don't know, because the thistle dies. <laughs> Gets run over. It'd be like this. Uh, a chihuahua writes a letter to the President of the United States saying, can my child marry your daughter? And you think, what's the President going to say? We don't know, because the chihuahua hits by a bus. <laughs> Boom. Story over. Squash. Chihuahua guts everywhere. No marriage proposal. That's how the story ends. <laughs> Trampled down by a thistle. But like I said, cut him some slack because he's not an English major or a Hebrew literature major, I guess. <laughs> well, verse 10, you've struck down Edom, he says. Your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory. Stay at your home. Why should you provoke me to trouble so that you will fall, you and Judah, with you? 
He says, don't bother me anymore with your fights. Don't say, come look at my face because you're not even worth getting out of bed to go fight. He's pleading. This is the younger brother picking a fight with the older brother when the older brother is surrounded by his football team. Younger brother, go home, please. Because I will fight you if you provoke me, but come on. It's not even worth my time here. And then just go home. Be like Puerto Rico invading the United States. Please don't, Puerto Rico. Don't invade the United States for no other reason than it would be just a real pain to like have to activate the National Guard and all that. and just be, It would be a real distracting thing to try to put down. You're not going to get anywhere, Puerto Rico, if you even have an army. <laughs> but don't. Come after us. Please don't. Not worth anybody's time. That's the kind of response that Israel writes back to Judah. Judah, what are you doing? Go back to sleep. <laughs> Go back to bed. Call me in the morning. That's the attitude here. But... Remember, pride plus compromise equals disaster. Amaziah wouldn't listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. It doesn't just belong to Judah. It's 15 miles into Judah. In fact, it's past Jerusalem. And so the king of Israel realizes, oh my goodness, he's going to make me actually fight him. So he gets his army together. He goes after the army of, of, of Judah. It's past Jerusalem. It's way deep into Judah's territory. And that's where the battle happens. And not surprisingly, verse 12, the, the wild beast squashes the thistle. Verse 12, Judah was defeated by Israel and every man fled from his home. But Jehoash is not satisfied with this. He's not happy with just hitting his younger brother in the face and sending him home. In fact, he's going to teach him a lesson here. He's going to teach him a lesson. So Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, verse 13, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits. That's 600 feet. That's 200 yards. So some translation, I think the NAS says he put a hole in the wall. But yeah, it's a 200-yard hole. Two football fields. That's a little bit more than a hole. He broke down the wall around Jerusalem and stole their king. That's the younger brother picks a fight with you and you throw his bed out your window and then lug him by your ear to high school and drop him off there. That's what he does to teach him a lesson. He breaks down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, verse 14. He seized all the gold and the silver, all the vessels that were found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages. And then he returned to Samaria. So he plundered the temple too. He stole their king, broke their wall and looted their temple. That's what he did. Um, how's that for a lesson? And by the way, this is deep inside of Judah. You know, we, our own country had a, a civil war. You know, you understand this. It's, it's one thing to say that, you know, there was a, a, an American a bank that was robbed by an invading Mexican army in Texas. We have a grid for that in the Wild West. It's another thing to say that, you know, the, that they got into Fort Knox and looted Fort Knox. <laughs> It's a little bit further away from the Mexican border. That's what's happening here. The Israel comes in and they loot the temple in the middle of Judah. This marks, I gave you this less last time, but the fourth time in Israel's history where the temple is looted. But you see how it's getting progressively worse. The first three were all from foreign nations. This fourth time here, it's Israel that's looting it. The temple in Jerusalem is now looted by Israel's own people. And the next time it happens, it will be destroyed, by the way when the temple is hit next. This is the lesson that they're taught. They won't repent. Pride plus compromise equals disaster. He wouldn't see the Lord's hand on his life, the king of Judah. And so he's led 
to being looted by the other ten tribes. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, verse 15, all he did, his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Aren't they written in the book of the Chronicles, kings of Judah, or kings of Israel? Jehoash slept with his fathers, was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. So what kind of guy was Jehoash? The king of Israel, the the cold-hearted king, not the half-hearted, but the cold-hearted king? Well, he's the kind of pagan king that would name his son Jeroboam. So the first king we see is the half-hearted king, and he's the one that leads his people in the compromise and is looted and held captive. Now we're going to turn our focus in verse 23 down to Jeroboam. Let's finish this paragraph first. In verse 19, they made a conspiracy against him. This is how the king of Judah will die. He fled to Lachish. That's uh, even further south from Jerusalem. They sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. So once he finally got released by the king of Israel, he was, remember, kidnapped by the king of Israel. Once he finally broke the jail and run back, ran back to Judah, his own people didn't want him anymore. They were so angry at him for picking a fight with Israel that his own people put him to death. They chased him down all across the tribe of Judah and put him to death there. They brought him, verse 20, on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. You have to love Judean etiquette right here. We hate our king so much, we will chase him across the country and kill him there. But because of the whole line of David thing, we're going to put his body on the horse and bring it back and bury him in Jerusalem because he was a king after all. <laughs> That's what they do with him. All the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, made him king instead of his father Amaziah. But we will look at him next week in chapter 15. He built El, uh, Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Those are their first three lessons here about the lukewarm king. Let's look at the fourth and final lesson about our cold-hearted king. God's compassion is not to be confused with his pleasure. Just because God shows compassion to his people, it's not the same thing as God saying he's pleased with his people. God gives grace to those, even those whom he's not pleased with. And this is going to become an example from Jeroboam. In the 15th year of Amaziah, king of Joash, remember this is the time stamp, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. He reigned for 41 years, king Jeroboam did. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. There's no ambiguity with him. He lived up to his namesake. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. Remember that, sin, that king hundreds of years earlier at the beginning of 1 Kings, the son of Nebat, the cow-worshipping king which made Israel to sin. But... Look at this. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabia, according to the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke by a servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gathafur. Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was none left, bond or free. There was no one to help Israel. Judah can't help them. They're being punished. And God sees the desperation of his people. Now, this is the same timeline as chapter 13 that we looked at this morning. Remember chapter 13, after Elisha died, God still gave his people victory. This is how he ended chapter 13 with these series of victories. Do you remember what chapter 13 said about the king that gave him victory? He was described, I think it was in verse uh, 5, chapter 13, verse 5, that Yahweh would give Israel a savior to give them victory. ESV translates a savior, that's the word. Other translations will say a, you know, a, a hero or a helper or other words, but the word is savior. This is that savior. Now, we didn't get his name in chapter 13. We find out who he is in chapter 14. He's King Jeroboam. He is the savior God gives Israel. 
Now, this is obviously not a spiritual savior. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord. He rejects the Lord. He worships the cow gods. But he's the savior God gives. Why does God raise him up? One reason. Because God is compassionate. He sees how desperate Israel is. Takes you back in your mind to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God tells Israel, I loved you because I, I loved you. I chose you because I loved you. I loved you because I chose you. It's a chicken-egg scenario here. God will have compassion on Israel because he loves Israel. And he loves Israel because he chose them. And he chose them because he loves them. It's not because of anything good in them. It's not because they're the most numerous nation on earth, but they were the fewest. He chose them when they were one person. They weren't even yet a nation. And God set his love on them. And now he has compassion for them. And the Lord sees their suffering. Suffering of their own doing. They're not innocent victims here. And this messes with our concept of justice, our concept of karma. We live in a world where if you do good things, good things should happen to you. You see the old lady struggling with her walker and her purse hanging off the side of her walker trying to cross the stoplight at Backlick and you help her across, then you should, I don't know, win the lottery or something. That's the way we think. Oh, you did a kind deed. Something good should happen to you. Or you run up and you steal the old woman's purse and run away, then you should, I guess, get hit by the bus. <laughs> but God doesn't deal like that. There's the principle that your own moral evil will come back onto you. What you sow, you'll, or what you reap, you'll sow. Yet at the same time here, you're seeing wicked people receive mercy from the Lord for no other reason and the fact God has chosen to be compassionate on them. This is what Moses meant back in Exodus 34 when he told Israel, the Lord will show compassion to whom he wants to show compassion. He will show his grace to whom he wants to show his grace. That's what God will do. It's the operating principle of, of salvation in Romans chapter 9. The Lord will save who he'll save. He'll show compassion to whom he wants to show compassion. And he wants to show compassion to Israel. And so despite the fact that they have a cow-worshipping king named Jeroboam, they're looting the temple. I mean, these are not half-hearted people. They are stealing the gold from the temple. You need to have a grid for their evil here. Those are the people that God is giving a savior to because of his compassion on them. That does not mean that God is pleased with them, though. You would be wrong if you said, oh, God gave them a savior, and look, look how much God must love them. He let them loot the temple. Let's be more like Jeroboam. No. It's not a sign of God's pleasure. What you learn from this is that God is compassionate. In verse 27, Yahweh had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And this is going to start, this is the first time we see this tension here, but it's going to increase every chapter through the rest of 2 Kings where you begin to wonder, how can God keep both of his promises? How can he promise that Abraham will, descendants will multiply and have the promised land? And at the same time, how can he promise the Mosaic covenant that if, Abra if the, his descendants reject God, that they will be punished by God? How can both be true? How can God remove them from the land and keep them in the land at the same time? And we'll find out by the end of 2 Kings, by the way. But here you see the tension. God did not promise to blot them out. Yet, they're going to be blotted out, but not yet. Not from under heaven. So he saved them. There's that word again. 
by the hand of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, that's the word saved, is the word for savior. Jeroboam was their savior. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, all that he did in his might, how he fought, how he restored Damascus and Hamath to, to Judah and Israel. He even did good things for Judah. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So, would you rather, this is the would you rather game, would you rather be a half-hearted so-called believer or a stone-hearted pagan? Now, neither are good choices. They both have the same eternal destiny. Neither are good choices. But this chapter stands as a little warning to the half-hearted. The person who is in his half-hearted condition is worse off than the Jeroboam. The Jeroboam is under no illusions about his relationship with the Lord. He's under no false pretenses here. He knows exactly who he is. He comes across the temple to Yahweh. He loots the temple of Yahweh. That's what he does. And yet, it seems like he has a more accurate perception of reality than the half-hearted so-called worshipers of God. God does what's practically unthinkable. He expands Israel under Jeroboam. He does what's practically unthinkable with the lukewarm king. He has the temple looted and the line of David taken captive yet again. Jeroboam II was not a good king because he didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. But he was a clear-minded leader with no morals, wicked to the core. You could call him this. If Jesus is our sinless Savior, Jeroboam is the sinful Savior. <laughs> Sent by the Lord to do the Lord's will to rescue the Lord's people. But not sinless. Not even godly. Confronted by a prophet. We skipped over it when we read it. But did you catch the name of the prophet that confronted him in his ministry? Jonah. And yes, it's that Jonah. This is the timeline where Jonah overlaps with Israel. And this gives you a window into Jonah's life. Why was Jonah so reluctant to go to Nineveh? Because look at what's happening in Israel. And Jonah goes, what a contrast. Jonah leaves the king named Jeroboam II and the pagan idol worshipers that populate the promised lands to go to Nineveh who the Israelites would say, those are the bad guys. But remember our lesson in the second Kings? Israel's not the good guys. Israel's the bad guys too. Jonah is not comfortable with that lesson. He's not comfortable labeling Israel the bad guys, despite the fact he confronts their king. He's sent off to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh, and he confronts them. Tells them, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Very similar message that he gave the king of Judah, who didn't respond. Jonah chapter 3. Jonah began to go through the city, day's journey. He spent a day walking around, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. If you're familiar with Jonah chapter 3, remember, this is, this is a straight-up revival. Even the sheep get saved. Do you remember? They get shaved, but they also get saved. Do you remember? The sheep put on sackcloth. The sheep repent. 
I mean, if you've been to some Billy Graham crusades, I'm sure you've seen some powerful altar calls and lots of people come forward, but you never saw them bring their pets with them, did you? You never saw the dog. It's one thing when revival comes to the household when the golden retriever gets saved. <laughs> That's what happened in Nineveh. What a contrast from Judah. The lukewarm don't see the need for a savior. The cold-hearted Ninevites, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So I guess the chief lesson from the lukewarm for us tonight is to come to the terms of the fact that there's really no such thing as being lukewarm. The lukewarm is cold-hearted with deception. <laughs> the lukewarm is a self-deceived, cold-hearted person. And the first step to come into faith in Christ is to realize your heart is cold. The first step to salvation here is moving from Jerusalem to Israel. The second step from Israel to Nineveh. The first step is to realize that just because you may have a cross around your neck and a Bible in your house, if you have no love for the Lord, you're not in a relationship with Him. Realize that your heart is actually cold. That's where they are in Israel. The next step is to realize that because your heart is cold, you need a Savior, and God will give you a Savior. That's where they are in Nineveh. That's the progress here. This is the trajectory. And how wicked God's people are that the path to salvation goes from Jerusalem to Israel to Nineveh. I pray that would be your progress. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would come to terms with that reality tonight, that you would see that half-hearted devotion is no devotion at all. If you have areas of your life that have been closed off to the Lord, that you would realize those areas are cold and in need of a Savior. And that you would cry out to the Lord who is eager to hear. Father, we're grateful that you sent a better Savior, of course, than Jeroboam. You didn't send us a sinful Savior, but a sinless Savior. You yourself came. You were our Savior. Leading a sinless life. Giving us grace and mercy through your death and resurrection on the cross. We're thankful for the love that you've shown us in Christ. I pray for anyone here tonight who has never given you their heart. I pray that you would work in their hearts tonight. Cause them to confess their sin to you. Cause them to go from trusting themselves to seeing the spiritual decay in their own hearts, to trusting you. And we know you're eager to save as Jonah preached. As the Ninevites believe, so we believe as well. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.